0: All right, so we've been working our way through the Lord's Prayer. If you're familiar with it, it's a prayer that, uh, as we just said, in uh, as part of the uh, prayers of the people this morning, uh, it's that prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples as a guideline for how they should pray. And it's, it's I think, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. I think of the Lord's Prayer, I think of it sort of like a hammer. <laughs> so uh, here's, here's the object the lesson, for those of you who can't read. But... Um, uh, it's, it's like a hammer in, the, in this sense. You know, my daughter recently moved into an apartment and she she needed a hammer and I, I to, uh, I guess, to hang some pictures or something. I didn't even know she knew which end of a hammer to hold. But a hammer is something that anyone can figure out, I think, or most people can figure out with, with a little bit of instruction, maybe a YouTube video or something like that, to show them the nuances. But, but on the other hand, if you go to a home building site and they're building a house today, you'll notice a lot of sophisticated tools that demand a lot of expertise, you know, power tools, pneumatic tools, laser tools, computerized tools that, that people use to, to build it on a modern building site. But at the same time, all the carpenters still have a hammer. And if you're skilled with a hammer. You can use it to do all kinds of things, and and sometimes you can work faster with a hammer than you can with all those heavy and complicated tools that are out there. And in the same way, the Lord's Prayer is a simple tool that we can use at at our most basic and desperate times, or even when we're just trying to figure out what it even means to pray. That's why in recovery groups, if you've been in, in in a recovery group, sometimes... Or often, they'll close with the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And at the same time, it's a part of Christian liturgies, and it contains some of the deepest truths of the Christian faith. So there's really something at every stage of our journey that we can use in the Lord's Prayer. And, and today we're going to look at something that is definitely universally act- applicable, and it is forgiveness. Forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he followed up on this petition. This is the one petition that gets a follow-up right after the Lord's Prayer. You might not know this, but the very next verse says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you. Will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses? This is God's word for God's children this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would open our eyes to the power of forgiveness and the possibility of forgiveness in our daily lives and give us renewed hope as we look at the brokenness and the wreckage that's all around us and sometimes even the brokenness and wreckage that's in our heart the hope that comes from tapping the power of forgiveness. Give us that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now one of the things that it seems like everybody agrees on, but nobody wants to do anything about, is that we're at this terrible stage in American life and history right now, where we've developed this culture of grievance. Where everybody wants to get their way by complaining about all the ways they and their ancestors have been wronged over the centuries. And if you're in an oppressed minority, you have a set of grievances. But if you're in a powerful majority, you have another set of grievances. And it seems like the one thing that's consistent is we all, all public discourse now is based on the sense that we're all aggrieved and there's all these wrongs that need to be righted. And uh, you know this is something that, that is not new to America in this day and age. It's something that's been practiced throughout the centuries. You might remember that was uh, Hitler's technique in the 30s and 40s to whip people up and blame the, uh, the Jewish people for the problems that were in Germany at that time. And, and even if you go further back in Christian history in the second and third century, There were were these tremendous uh, persecutions of Christians, but those persecutions were sparked by the need of the emperor, by Diocletian and Caligula and the other emperors, to find someone to blame for the economic problems that were facing the Roman Empire. He said, well, let's blame this new group, this new movement. Let's blame all the Christians for it. And so that's what what sparked the uh, persecution of Christians. And, And there's a reason for that, and it's simply this. I think the most powerful demagogic tool that's out there, something that motivates people and something that moves us to action is fear and resentment and a sense of being wronged. That's a much more powerful tool to, in the short run, to move people to action than, than hope and love and, and things like that. And you know what, here's the thing. This is kind of a warning, but you, you know maybe you can take this for for advice, depending on where you're at, but it's actually also powerful in relationships. You know how you gain power in your relationships within your family and your friends, among your roommates, or at work? Make someone feel like you're an offended party and they owe you something. You know, when you do that, then all of a sudden they'll be walking on eggshells around you. All of a sudden you'll be able to get things out of them that they wouldn't normally get you know I mean that's how you know how to how do, how do you get your husband to buy you flowers right get get really mad at him and, and he'll you know the, the flowers will be there uh, <laughs> just, just a little tip I, I don't suggest you use that tip but anyways <laughs> so resentment grievances it's actually one of the most powerful things in our our world to get our way and here's the problem Here's the big problem with it though, in your personal relationships, if you are using grievance and resentment to get your way, pretty soon all those relationships will be gone. There'll be no more relationships for you to get your way with because you'll find yourself completely alone. And if you use in our society and in our country and in our cities and in our nation, if we use grievance and resentment to get our way the very fabric of our nation will be torn apart. You might get elected, you might win a court case, you might gather a big crowd, but at the end of the day, our very society, our very cities, our very nation are gonna be rent by that. It's a powerful tool, but it's a tool that ultimately is used, can, can only succeed in destroying, never in putting things together. It's, It's like a gun or like a hammer, in that sense, that you can break a lot of things with it. But it's much easier to break things than it is to repair them. It's much easier to hurt somebody than it is to heal somebody. So today, what I want to do is give you a tool that maybe is not as immediately powerful, but is actually the tool of restoration, and that's the tool of forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually the Christian superpower. Forgiveness is the church's superpower. And if forgiveness was something we could harness, I believe that's what would change the world around us. Someone who recognized this was someone who led a group that actually had a legitimate grievance 50, 60 years ago, and that was Martin Luther King. And his strategy was to bring us to a place where people could offer forgiveness, even as people groups, to, to one another. In one pla- place he said, First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. Because he is devoid of the power to forgive, is devoid of the power to love. That's true for every area of life. He sa- goes on to say, It's impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necess- necessity, over and over again, on forgiving those who inflict evil and injury on us. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst that creates the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It's the lifting of a burden and the cancellation of a debt. See, forgiveness has the potential to be a powerful force. It's powerful in our personal relationships, it can be powerful in the church, powerful in society, powerful in our nation even. It's powerful, but it's not easy. Obviously, if it was easy, then everyone would do it. I found a a, a basic principle of life when it comes to these things like Like, you know, we talk about sin in the abstract and people will uh, write articles like, does sin exist? And it's sort of this theoretical thing. But if after church today you go back to your apartment or go back to your home and you find out your home has been, been broken into and everything of value has been taken away and everything else that was personal to you has just been destroyed, you won't be sitting there saying, I wonder if sin really exists. You'll have a pretty clear sense that there is sin and evil in this world and that you've been a victim of it, right? We've all had those times. No, no matter what your view of sin and, and good and bad is, when you experience the bad, it's real. It's real to you. It's real in your experience. And in, in the same way, you know, forgiveness, we can get glib about forgiveness. Well, yeah, I know God forgave me and I know oh, you, you forgive me, but, but so what? That doesn't really solve my problems. But when you're actually called on, to forgive somebody, you realize this is really hard, this is really difficult, this is going to take something I don't have right now. And uh, you know, if you don't believe me, try uh, dealing with a little brother and little sister when they get into a spat and you say, okay, well, well, this is over now, let's let's try to forgive one another. How and if you if you've worked with little kids, you know that can be quite quite a challenge. You know, all of us think. Sin is serious when someone sins against us, right? And all of us think forgiveness is a big deal if we actually get to the place where we're going to, uh, to uh, forgive other people. And yet, Jesus says forgiveness is an essential part of our life. In fact, he says, you know, I came so that you could experience God's forgiveness, but on the other hand, if you can't forgive other people, then you're not gonna know God's forgiveness. Unless you find within yourself, unless you find a way to forgive other people, you can't begin to, you, you, you are not gonna know God's forgiveness. One of the things you notice in the Lord's Prayer is Jesus, the Lord's Prayer kind of assumes something that we'd rather not face. He assumes that we live in a world full of sinners and that every time we pray, we're going to have to ask for forgiveness because we're sinners and we're going to have to offer forgiveness to others because the people around us are sinners as well. And so, so forgiveness is, is of the essence of the Christian life in that sense. It's the, of the essence of life in a world full of sinful people. It's the essence of working life. It's the essence of family life. It's of the essence of church life because our world is full of sinners. Now, in this this prayer and in other places, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he's using a banking term. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And often in in the uh, in other places where Jesus is talking about forgiveness and in the parables, often he compares forgiveness or uses the analogy of, of a loan being forgiven to uh, describe God's forgiveness to us. So basically what forgiveness is, is when we come to God and we say to God, God, I'm spiritually and morally bankrupt. Will you wipe away all of my guilt? Christianity is a religion for the morally bankrupt. It's, it's a religion for the spiritually bankrupt who've received grace. Now, I remember talking about this once. I was in a, a little men's Bible study with a couple other guys, and one of the guys in the group happened to be a banker, and so we're, I was talking about this, this concept, or the, or the New Testament concept of forgiveness being analogous to a loan being forgiven. I said, so, by the way, Mr. Banker, do banks ever forgive sin, forgive debts? And he said, Absolutely not it never ever ever happens. <laughs> we know what it we know what you're talking about, but we don't don't have any provision for that ever and uh it kind of makes sense because I mean imagine this imagine you were saving up for uh you you have a little savings account, you're saving up for your first house you're you're work you're working to accumulate the money for the down payment, and you're getting a fair chunk of change in there, and and you're you're almost ready to buy that house, and then you get a letter from the bank, and they say, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, we just want to inform you that your savings account is now at a zero balance, and that's because uh, Mr. Jones ran up quite a bill, and he couldn't pay it back, and we decided to forgive his debt, and we had to take the money out of your account to do that. I mean, how would that make you feel? (laughs) but uh, you know we banks can't forgive loans because they'd cease to exist because if they're going around forgiving loans ultimately what they'd have to do is is take take money from someone else take money from take deposits from someone else and apply them against those bad debts but uh because this is the problem with forgiveness it's always free to the recipient but it's expensive to the giver right it, it's 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 free to receive forgiveness, but when you have to forgive someone for sinning against you, that hurts. That's hard. That's difficult. And uh, when, we, when we forgive someone their obligation against us, we're saying, I'm going to absorb that obligation on myself. And uh, so when we ask God to forgive us our debts, what are we doing? We're saying, I'm not going to pay the debt of my sin God, I'm going to ask you to absorb that. So when God invites us to say, forgive us our sins, he's, he's saying, I know you're broke, but come to me anyways. 1 John 1.9 puts it this way. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God says, I'll cover your sins. I'll, I'll pay the price for your sins. But the question is, how does God do that? Bible says, the New Testament says, that's what the lifelong work of Jesus is all about. That's why we have Christmas, where God became one of us. That's why we have Good Friday, where God died on the cross for us. That's why we have Easter Sunday, where God rose from the dead for us. That was the life work of Jesus, is, is Him finding a way, creating a way where God could forgive your sin, so that God could say to you, you are forgiven, so that God could say to you, your debts have all been canceled, and you can come to me. See, justice is we pay our own debts. The mercy of God is that he pays our debts for us. We bring our bankruptcy to him, we bring our guilt to him, and he gives us his mercy. So that's what forgiveness is, and, and that's why for Christians it's central because that that's what Jesus came to do that's what the cross is all about that's why we celebrate the holidays that we celebrate christmas and good friday and easter we're celebrating the work god did to accomplish our redemption to purchase our forgiveness to pay for our forgiveness now it's important to understand what forgiveness is sometimes people think well forgiveness is just overlooking a wrong that's been done you know Someone asks you to, for forgiveness, and you say, well, it's really no big deal. But forgiveness isn't when we say, well, our sin is no big deal, but we're go- and so we're just going to overlook it. Forgiveness is when you say, well, let's take a full account of what, what was lost, of what was broken, of what was taken, and then pay the price to cover it completely. Forgiveness makes the most of our sin so that we can understand the price that God paid to take it away. Psalm 25:11, I've brought this up before, it says, it says this, "For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. And that's the essence of the prayer of someone who's seeking forgiveness from God. Pardon my guilt because it's no big deal. No, pardon my guilt because it's great. And anything because if, if my guilt's no big deal, then I could just uh, make amends myself. But if my guilt is great, I'm going to need something supernatural. I'm going to need a profound act of grace for me to experience redemption. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's why forgiveness doesn't minimize our failure. It maximizes it so that we can maximize God's grace. And you know, this is one of the things that was part of the genius of Martin Luther King as well. You know, some people considered him an agitator because he was protesting all of these issues and getting thrown into prison and and leading civil disobedience but but really what he was doing was bringing to light these issues so that true reconciliation could happen. He refused to overlook the problems with segregation in the Jim Crow South because he wanted true restoration and forgiveness to happen. And um, In another place he says, for more than three centuries Afro Americans have been battered by the iron rod of oppression, frustrated by day and bewildered by night by unbearable injustice and burdened with the ugly weight of discrimination. We've been forced to live in these shameful conditions and we're tempted to become bitter and retaliate with a corresponding hate. But if this happens, the new order that we seek will be little more than a duplicate of the old order. We must, in strength and humility, Meet hate with love. See, he understood that the way to form, to bring restoration was not to ignore injustice, but to bring injustice to light so that, so that injustice could be forgiven. And the way to find restoration in your relationships is not to ignore the wrongs that are done to you, but to bring them to light. and then, And then, and then by the power and the grace of God, apply God's grace to those injustice. You know, we can't negotiate a settlement with God. We don't come to God and say, well, I'm really a lot better than most people, so, uh, so give me a pass. Rather, we need to come to Him and throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. If forgiveness was easy, like I said, everyone would do it, but it's supernatural, and so only God can do it. It wasn't easy for God. You know, he created the world in, by, by fiat, but to offer forgiveness to us, he had to send his son to live, to die, and to conquer death for us. And so the heart of the Christian message is that our relationship with God is not based on our sacrifice, not based on our service, not based on our good deeds, not based on our religiosity, but it's 100% based on his grace and His mercy for us. The sacrifice of Christ for me, the service of Christ for me, the righteousness of Christ credited to me because my sin and my failure was charged to Him when He died for me. To become a Christian, we declare bankruptcy. And here's the thing. To progress in our Christian life, we go back for more and more grace. I like Psalm 32. It's also printed there in your program where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, he says we experience blessedness from God not by perfecting our lives, not, not necessarily by purifying our lives but, or by taking all the flaws out of our life. We experience blessedness from God when we experience his forgiveness and his mercy in our life that's the path to blessedness that's the path to God's blessing it's recognizing how utterly dependent you are on God's mercy and grace that makes God's blessing and God's God's gifts to you more and more real when we realize that our relationship with God and God's blessing to us is a gift that we receive not a reward that we earn so so this is a great challenge, and but the real challenge here that I want you to see and the thing that makes it real and shows us how far we are from understanding this is that not only does God offer us supernatural forgiveness, but then he calls us to offer others that forgiveness. I mean, look at how blunt Jesus is. Verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus says receiving forgiveness means it's non-optional for us to offer forgiveness to others. Because we're not, no longer like a bank that has to balance their books and have the credits match the debits for everything to work out. But we're recipients of God's amazing grace. And the sign that you've actually received God's grace, the sign that God's grace has actually touched your life and changed your life, is that you're able to offer forgiveness to others when you're called to do so. In fact, if you get this, as you begin to understand this, the experience of offense and the experience of hurt and the experience of the blunt, edge of other people's sin is actually an opportunity to go deeper into his grace it's it's an opportunity for us to more profoundly experience the riches of his grace for us because the mark of a Christian is someone who's been forgiven but having been forgiven we must be people who are forgiving Our hurts and our losses and our offenses are actually opportunities to dig deeper into God's grace. To realize that we don't yet understand all it is that God has given to us and how merciful God has been to us. And and then, and then accessing that well, we can show forgiveness and we can show grace to others. And so, you know, you don't have to go looking for these opportunities. My observation life gives us these opportunities. And the challenge for us is to remember in the midst of them when your brother or when your sister or your, your kids or your parents or, or your co-workers uh, get on your nerves and offend you and hurt you, remember God's grace to you. Remember God's mercy on you so that you can show God-like mercy to other people. The world... Has come to recognize that the grievance culture, though it empowers people, it actually, it's actually in the process of destroying the fabric of society. And you know, the tragedy, I think, just just to be real, is as I go around and, and you know talk to a lot of people. A lot of people haven't been in church in decades. You ask them why not, and they can go back to something that happened in a church they were a part of 10 years ago or 20 years ago or or or. Uh, or 30 years ago where something went wrong and there there was a big church fight and there was a big church split and it was so ugly and it was so painful that they never want to be a part of church again. But what God calls his church to do to represent him is to be a hotbed of forgiveness, to practice forgiveness. And the assumption in the Lord's Prayer is that we're going to have to. You know, that as we live and move in your family, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. In your church, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. And among your neighbors, among, in your community, you're going to have to practice this if you're going to, to make it. Someone has said that, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer is, is a good framework for marriage. And one of the things that will make a good marriage or make a strong family is if people know how to forgive, if people learn how to forgive, then they'll be able to actually make their family work. I mean, because last I checked, none of us have any options in terms of our relationships other than being friends with sinners. And none of us have any options in terms of our romances other than getting into relationships with other sinners. And so if you marry a sinner, what do you expect is going to happen? Like I said, sin is no big deal. It's just a theoretical concept until someone sins against us and so grace and uh, forgiveness is the superpower that god has given the church and it's a superpower that god has given each of us and as we exercise it there is hope that our families our friendships our communities and even our country can be rebuilt by god's grace it's not natural It's supernatural, but it's what the world needs now. Let me just close with these words from Dr. King. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. My friends, we followed the so-called practical way for a long time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind We must discover another way. This is the only way to build the beloved community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as sinners and we need forgiveness. We thank you for your invitation to bring our sin and failure to you. And so we, we ask that you would enable us to do that. And we come to you as those who failed to follow through. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the reality of your grace to us. That we might somehow come to the place where we can show that supernatural grace to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.